but to make sure that we at least understand what other people are saying. And we have, pardon, we have a progressive dispensationalist, we have a dispensationalist, we have an all-mill, we have a post-mill. And uh, a couple of these people have books out in the back. And uh, Rice Limbaugh says when he is on his radio program, the views expressed are not necessarily that of the management, but then he always adds, but they ought to be. <laughs> and our post-mill brother back here, he says, we hope they will be with you. So uh, because something is out there doesn't mean that we necessarily agree with anything in it. I don't agree with the stuff I wrote five years ago myself. So, uh, But uh, that's going to be the thing. And we want to try to focus the discussion on the things that are being said, primarily for clarification, primary where we get at basic presuppositions and the specific things that one does believe and one doesn't believe and why he rejects the other view. Tomorrow afternoon at the same time, there will be a discussion where we'll have all the speakers and that will be an open discussion where we can bring up anything that you'd like to bring up and have a discussion on that subject. We would ask the speakers if they would use the microphone and also let them uh, introduce themselves and also where they pastor right now. Yeah, I was just going to say, how much time? Uh, Ten minutes, max. You told me twelve. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's changed the... Okay, ten to twelve. I don't care. I don't care. I just, you know, just want to be careful not changing the terms of the covenant midstream. <laughs> I... I'm supposed to introduce myself. I'm Fred Zaspel, pastor at Word of Life Baptist Church in Pottsville, Pennsylvania. I'm supposed to talk about the historic, dis, or the, uh, the historic premillennial view. How does historic premillennialism differ from dispensational premillennialism? I'm not entirely sure anymore. Um, if historic dispensationalism, I'm sorry, historic premillennialism means that I confuse Israel and the church, which is often done in historic premillennialism, then obviously I'm not that. If historic premillennialism means that you believe in a post-trib rapture and not a pre-tribulation rapture as the dispensationalist pre-mill does, well then I am historic pre-mill. So that's where I am. I don't separate the comings of Christ into two events as they would. Now, what I want to do is, is briefly explain how I arrive at, at where I am. And I'm gonna start off by picking up where David started uh, yesterday, or where he left off. He started talking about the now and the not yet. And I want to round that out a little bit. We speak in terms of the kingdom now and the kingdom not yet. And I first want to point out that that's not some isolated argument that we're pulling out of some obscure part of prophecy. This is the tendency in biblical prophecy. This is the pattern, I think, that you can establish very well throughout. For instance, we can start with the very first prophecy of the Bible. Genesis 3.15 about the serpent. Jesus comes and starts casting out demons and he interprets that it seems in reference to that prophecy in Genesis 3.15. He is ransacking Satan's kingdom. A little later in John chapter 12, 
Jesus himself again then identifies the fulfillment of that prophecy in Genesis 3 in terms of his work on the cross. Now is judgment on the prince of this world. And John explains, he mentions that in reference to the cross. So it then is a past event. Jesus fulfilled that promise. But then we read the book of Romans, and in chapter 16, Paul says, I trust that God shortly will crush Satan under your feet. And wherever you put that in the eschaton or in the end times, we see plainly it's a future. There's a now and the not yet. I think that fits very well then with Revelation chapter 20 and the final destruction of Satan. But you can see clearly wherever we put Revelation 20, there's the now and the not yet aspect of that promise. We can do the same with Deuteronomy chapter 18, the prophecy of that great prophet who would come. That finds its immediate fulfillment, I think we would all agree, in Israel's prophets in her own history. But of course it found its culmination in that one prophet, singular, Jesus. But then again you see there was the now and the not yet. You find that actually illustrated in our own salvation. There is the now and the not yet of our own salvation, which we all recognize very well. Another one I think that's interesting in that regard is the prophecy of God to dwell with His people. That was the promise, and in a very real sense that was fulfilled in, under the Old Covenant, where God tabernacled with his, his people. But then John takes that language and says that's fulfilled now in the Incarnation. But then we find, and I think we would all agree on this, that that is finding a fuller fulfillment in this age since Pentecost, that God is dwelling with His people. And then, of course, there's the end of the book of Revelation where God has tabernacled with men and we're entering into the eschaton. There's the now and the not yet. And what I'm saying is that this is not some isolated argument that we're using in reference to the kingdom only. This is the pattern of predictive prophecy that it comes evidently in stages. There's the now and the not yet. Now, what that comes to is, I think, a very comfortable position, and that is, whereas on the one side, the amillennialist can take some Old Testament prophecy and say, here I can show you where this prophecy demands a present fulfillment. I can say, yeah, that's right. On the other hand, when a dispensationalist might come along and, say, and do some exegetical work in the past and say, now look, there are some details here that demand a future fulfillment, I can say yes. And while each of them might be fighting with the other, I can sit in between and say, you both have half the information. And I can be very comfortable, and they can fight amongst themselves, and I can say there is the now and the not yet. And that, I'm saying, is the pattern of predictive prophecy that we find in so many of the prophecies, not just that of the kingdom. Now then, there comes the question of, well, 10 minutes, I won't take time to turn to it. When does this, yes we will, Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah chapter 14. This not yet aspect of the kingdom, does it, is it fulfilled in history or is it filled in the eternal state? Now Zechariah 14, 16, it seems to me, pictures a silver age, not a golden age, but a silver age. Zechariah 14, 16, It shall come to pass that everyone that is left of all the nations which come against Jerusalem shall even go up from the year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of the Tabernacles. And it shall be that whoso will not come up of all the families of the earth unto Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, even upon them shall be no rain. And if the family of Egypt go not up, 
etc., then he will not have rain and there'll be judgments for not cooperating. Now, we have some options here that are open. Is he talking here about the present age? It doesn't seem so. In, in that, the threats that will be on these nations. And I don't know of many interpretations which take it that way. The New Geneva Bible applies this to the eternal state. But I don't know how it could apply this to the eternal state given the threat for those who disobey. And yet there is also this aspect of going up to Jerusalem year by year. And so this is not some brief mop-up phase after the second coming of Christ either. We're speaking of a silver age of some kind which is not the eternal state, it's not descriptive of today and I say that fits well with Revelation 20. 1 Corinthians 15 which David brought out yesterday I think is another of the same. It's not just the chronological sequence of the eta epeta but then comes the end when? And most amillennials put the period there after end but that's not what Paul does. It says, then comes the end, hatan, whenever, and then he uses that aorist subjunctive, I think, which we all will admit, an aorist subjunctive with the hatan especially is the functional equivalent of a future tense. Then comes the end, when he shall have put down all authority and all power, the last of which being death, etc. The end comes when he does these things. So there's the second coming, there's this time of putting down other authority, and then the consummation when he delivers the kingdom over to the Father. That is a premillennial outline of events, and I think it is drawn out of exegetical considerations. I don't know of any uh, hermeneutical presuppositions stuck into that. I'm simply taking, I think, the meanings of the words as they appear. So far as the Revelation 20, how much more time do I have? Pardon? <laughs> All right. <laughs> uh, who said that? I believe you. My wife says you're yeah, but the amillennialists always have trouble with time sequence, you know, so. <laughs> I know. Okay, we have, in the amillennial interpretation of Revelation 20, there is a parallel drawn, and I, I'm told this, and I'm told this, and I'm told it all the time, that you cannot interpret Revelation, apart, Revelation 20 apart from your basic presuppositions. That determines your exegesis. I don't think that's a fair charge. It might be that in your system, but I don't think it needs to be. And there are some reasons why. In the amillennial scheme, chapter 20 is parallel to chapter 12, where Satan is cast out of heaven. And I think there are some obvious differences that just lie on the surface of the text that demand another kind of scenario. For instance, in chapter 12, Satan is ejected from heaven to earth where he goes on his rampage. In chapter 20 he's ejected from earth to the abyss so that he can no longer be on a rampage. Now I'm not in bringing in any presuppositions when I say we're not talking about the same thing. Those two passages are different. In chapter 20 the easiest reading of chapters 19 and 20 of Revelation is the continuative chi's there and this and this and this. There is the triumvirate, the beast, the false prophet, and the antichrist. They are dealt with, they are grouped together in chapter 13, chapter 16, and here in chapter 19, 20, they are grouped together again. At the end of 19, the destruction of the beast and the false prophet, into chapter 20, there's the destruction of Satan himself. Uh, I think the passage is best read as hanging together, not trying to posit some kind of a shift backwards now into time. 
In chapter 12, again, Satan's time is short, and so he's furiously raging. In chapter 20, he's locked up a thousand years so that he can't rage. And then there's this other issue of deceiving the nations in chapter 20. It says he cannot deceive the nations anymore during this thousand year time. Now all, millenni all millennialists must say that this is something that refers to this age in terms of the hindrance of the gospel. Satan cannot hinder the gospel. One that seems to fly in the face of Matthew chapter 13 where the birds come according to Jesus' interpretation and do hinder the gospel work. But there's more to be considered than that because in chapter 12 there identifies Satan as deceiving the whole earth now. Now if chapter 12 says that he, cannot, he is deceiving, and chapter 20, it's the same term, planao, chapter 20 says he is not deceiving, I'm not making any interpretive assumptions to say we must be talking about two different time periods here. It is the amillennials that has to posit some kind of explanation to reconcile that exegetical data. What I'm trying to avoid, like I said earlier, is some kind of assumption thrown in. You have statements like in chapter 2 of Revelation, verse 26, he will rule with a rod of iron. That does not sound like an eternal state. It sounds like there must be some kind of rebellion that must be quelled and kept down during the time of the ruling. Why else the rod of iron? Then there's the issue of the two resurrections in chapter 20. Edze son, both times. And it's like I said earlier this morning, I don't know what kind of hermeneutic it is that can take two terms used within a few verses of each other and give one a spiritual meaning and the other a literal meaning. The burden of proof, I say, lies on the other side that has to bring in some hermeneutical tool to make that happen. It's not impossible, but the burden of proof would lie there. I think the consistent way of reading it would see it on a face value that is of the same kind of resurrection in both cases. One minute. One minute. Resurrection subject again. Daniel chapter 12. Uh, the, the passage pointed to, they shall be raised from the dust of the earth. Those of you who know Hebrew will know that's a very simple partitive min there. Out from the dead. They will be raised out from among the dead ones is the plain statement of the Hebrew text. That sounds like a separate resurrection. It sounds to me like the resurrection of the just. Again, I'm not bringing any assumptions. I'm saying if some are said to be raised out of the others, there must be separate resurrections. Point of clarification before you go. Uh -huh. When you mentioned Zechariah and the Feast of the Tabernacles, did you mean that in that period those feasts would... No, I deliberately overlooked that because I don't want to get bogged down into those details. What I'm saying is, whatever the meaning, if it's symbolic or literal, of those details, there is a silver age in that the worship is offered, and if it's not offered, there is a threat of judgment against it. So it's not a golden age. But it's a silver age okay. of some kind. All right. Next we have a progressive in the minds of some, retrogression in the minds of others. <laughs> the, the, some people would say they are going backwards. That's some of their historic pre-meals uh, would say that. But come up here. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. <laughs> <laughs> Wait till the next time. Oh, boy. You will introduce yourself to where you're from, the church. Okay. Well, my name is Lloyd Johnson, and I'm from the upper Midwest, from St. Paul, Minnesota. And I pastor Twin Cities Bible Church in the old uh, uh, cold Northland up there, I guess you'd call it. 
we think this is absolutely perfect weather down here now. But uh, Fred asked me to do this just a few days ago to, to help out in the program, and I've appreciated some of the remarks of John lately to keep all of this in balance, that we're here to present our positions as the best we know them. I think sometimes that's developing too. And uh, as I've discussed this uh, with other people and thought it through myself, this is such a complicated area that titles really don't serve us well, do they? Someone says, well, I'm an amillennialist. I have to ask, well, what particular brand? And uh, of course, John doesn't know what he is. And uh, that threw another thing in there. But, uh, and then it even, uh, even starts out this afternoon when Fred says, well, well uh, he's a historic premillennialist, but he's not quite sure that that's what he is. Actually, then I would say this. Representing the progressive dispensational premillennialists, that's a mouthful, uh, I don't find myself in my particular understanding of it to be very different from the position that Fred has just elucidated. Uh, I find a great deal of commonality there. So therefore, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take um, a little different tack in, a pre in presenting what it is that has uh, convinced me, or should I say kept me, in this camp so far. Uh, by the way, I came here this time to be a learner and uh, to sit and learn, and so I really appreciate all the discussion that's going on. Now, um, first of all, I'd like you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. In verse 18, now my approach is just going to be to talk about this issue of spiritualization of the text versus uh, naturalization of the text versus just reading the text. And uh, we find here in verse 18, Paul says, uh, for in the first place when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. And boy, I believe it here. And so, for there must, he says, also be factions among you, in order that those who are premillennial may have become evident among you. So that's what I think is happening in that verse. And that's what I think is, now follow me on this, I think that is what spiritualization of the text is. I do not accept that everyone spiritualizes the text. So we come down to really redefining or defining in the first place what these things mean. The other day I asked uh, Brother John what was meant by the term naturalizing the text. I believe that spiritualization is not a particular hermeneutic. It's my personal view is that spiritualization in toto is an error. Okay. And I think I would represent, and that's what I'm trying to do, a progressive dispensationalist in this regard. I think that spiritualization, rather than become a becoming a valid hermeneutic, would be a confusion or a misunderstanding or apprehension of symbol where there is no symbol. Now, uh, progressive dispensationalists certainly agree that there is symbolism in the Bible. We believe it's in the New Testament, we believe it's in the Old Testament. But we still do not believe in a spiritualizing of the text. And we would call that spiritualizing a, an error at a particular point in the text as you're moving along. Now, what I'd like to do just shortly here in this regard is to give an example of why 
I have always held to, I'm, I'm afraid to say it, a more literal approach to these passages. So if you go back to Ezekiel, and I'm not going to really uh, read this text as much as rehearse it. I'm sure you're very much aware of the text. But I just want to make a couple points. Um, here we have in this passage God rebuking Israel. Oh, I'm sorry, Ezekiel 36, beginning in 36. We're not going to read it, point out a few verses. But just to rehearse what's going, Ezekiel chapter 36 and 37. We have God rebuking Israel. And to summarize the main point as I understand it, God is saying to Israel, you have been dispersed throughout the nations, and rightfully so, because you deserve it, because you have profaned my name in all the earth. My name was fixed with you. You were my people, like no other people were in the earth, and yet you have failed and you have profaned my name. But he goes on to say that that's not the end of it. I'm going to gather you back together. We have the vision of the dry bones, and I think that there wouldn't be, I, I don't believe, too much argument that in the text the the dry bones is a representation of Israel. Israel, the nation, and regathered. At least that is certainly the progressive dispensationalist position. So that God is saying in this passage, I am going to regather that dispersed nation of Israel that has been judged by me and well deserving of that judgment. But here's the key. He says throughout this that I am going to regather that nation for one reason. Not because they're good, not because they've gotten better. But he said, I'm going to regather them for my holy name's sake. Why? Because you profaned it in all the earth. And the nations are out there saying such as this. And you, son of man, verse 1, prophesy to the mountains of Israel and say, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because the enemy has spoken against you. Aha! And the everlasting heights have become our possession. Therefore, prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord God, for good cause they have made you desolate and crushed you from every side and so forth. But the nations are speaking against his people. And the point that we would make as dispensationalist, progressive dispensationalism modified, is that God has affixed His name in history to a people called the Israelites. And dispensationalists would hold that there has not been a fulfillment of the very clear prophetic glory that Israel is destined to. Therefore, His holy name has not yet been vindicated. So, we find in the passage that Israel will be gathered together. Now, John, I don't mean to misrepresent you, and I'm sure you'll, you'll point that out if I do, and I say that wholeheartedly, but I uh, understand you yesterday to have said that all prophecy should be spiritualized, so that I would take that in this passage, Israel here, in the prophetic portions of it, is not the nation of Israel, but that it would be the church. Well, to make my point uh, as clear as possible, I find that that presents a hopeless morass of confusion in trying to figure out this whole thing. So what I've done is I've kind of put Israel in there, and I come up with a real problem. 
If I read it that Israel is a nation, if I follow the history, which we all agree to, things that happened with Israel, that nation, and I see the plain meaning that they have, in fact, uh, made God's name not to be holy, as it were, in all the nation, among the other nations of the earth that have looked on, then it makes all the sense in the world. And of course, as Fred has just brought out, we believe that there will be a regathering of Israel, as the text seems to indicate, that they will be raised not to some dominion, so to speak, but a prominence. We do believe that the Lord will reign physically and literally from Jerusalem, and that in that regard, God will vindicate his holy name. But now, put Israel in there uh, as the church. And I cannot make it fit. Who is it? And what is the point if Israel is not Israel, but Israel is the church? I have a statement here I'd just like to read because it can get somewhat complicated, the point that I want to make really in closing this out. I have a question. If it's spiritual Israel and not national Israel in the prophecy there of what's going to come to pass, if it's spiritual Israel, then it has to, in that sense, be the elect Israel, correct? Because as you press on into the passage, you're coming to the point of sprinkling clean water on and so forth, and it's a reborn experience in establishing of the covenant. So these people, whoever they are, are not yet born again. So it has to be, in some sense, the elect. But I have a question. When did the elect, the elect now, which means, of course, while still unregenerate, ever bear the insults and the injuries of the nations? When did that ever happen? As a matter of fact, they cannot be distinguished from the other unregenerate people. So I press and I try to find how does this make sense? if you go back and you spiritualize the term there, Israel, and make it the church. As a matter of fact, they cannot be distinguished. The elect cannot be distinguished from the unregenerate until they are born again. And then it becomes manifest. Well, the whole point of the prophecy is God is going to vindicate the glory of His name. Why? Because other nations have profaned his name in saying, Aha! Look! Now how do you make a spiritual Israel fit that passage and make it to come to any sense at all? It just doesn't work. It is uh, ridiculous because while they are in that condition, they are children of wrath like the rest. They cannot be distinguished. So we would have nations looking for someone who was blessed of the Lord, but who is it? We can't tell who's blessed of the Lord until they come to Christ. So now, I know this though, that there was a people, Israel, and they did all of these things, and God affixed His name to them without a doubt, and yet they did profane His name, and they uh, are going to be sprinkled clean and they are going to be brought back and when God does that 
all the world will know that he is the God of Israel. And so, of course, then that kind of a hermeneutic maintains that there must be a literal nation still. And I think with all of the other evidence that we've presented that, that sort of rounds out the progressive dispensationalist position. So anyway, that's just sort of a one technical point. Gary. Oh, yes. Will you let me know, John, when I have two more minutes? My name is Gary George, and I'm from Massachusetts and pastor a church in Southbridge, Mass, which is in south-central Massachusetts, Massachusetts, and it's called Grace Reformed Baptist Church. Uh, my position is that of an amillennialist, and let me briefly say why I came to this position. Having been a dispensationalist, as I said earlier yesterday, um, I understood that Old Testament prophecies could not be fulfilled in the New Testament. And to my surprise, in reading in the book of Romans, uh, in a study that I was doing, without commentary, uh, I recognized, of course, as all of us would anyway, how many Old Testament prophecies or Old Testament scriptures are located in the book of Romans. Incidentally, there are more quotations of the Old Testament in Romans than even Matthew, 64, verses 60. There are really three, approximately 350 Old Testament scriptures that are located in the New. That's basically literal from the Old to the New. Whereas if you would add up all the allusions and references and free, uh, quote, uh, free paraphrase type quotations from the Old, you would come up with approximately 1,000 references to the Old Testament in the New. And when you realize that the New Testament is 10,000 verses, and you realize then that about one-tenth of the Old Testament is found in the New, you kind of have to understand what Augustine meant when he said that the New Testament is concealed in the Old Testament and the Old Testament is revealed in the New Testament. Well, in studying the book of Romans, as I said, I had that premise that no Old Testament prophecies could be fulfilled in the New in any way. But when I came to Romans 1.1, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. That struck me, that Paul is saying, in essence, the gospel that I preach is one that can be verified from what the prophets proclaimed in the old. I'm not preaching anything new. It's substantiated from what the Old Testament says. And then when he goes into Abraham, the faith of Abraham that is now being revealed in the church age and so on, all seem to come, in my mind, in clarity. It helped me to understand, indeed, that Old Testament prophecies did have relevance in the New Testament age. And I began to see as I studied, and I, I believe that Romans, Acts, and Hebrews are very pivotal to this whole subject that we're entertaining uh, these few days here in eschatology. And in reading in Book of Acts, I saw that the throne of David was presently being occupied by Christ. And then the sure mercies of David in Acts 13, verse 32 to 34, were being actuated right now in the church age. In 15, 16, where Paul again is talking, and he's speaking about the uh, throne of the... Um, the house of David being built currently. And if these things were not 
actuated and realized presently in the church age, then the force of what was being preached would not have the same impact as it was having, especially on the Jews that were listening to their scriptures being preached in their ears. And what was extremely emotional and encouraging to me, and I realize you cannot allow emotion to influence your, your, your comprehension and allow that to sway you, but I must say that I was tremendously impacted when I began to see the mediatorial reign of Christ taking place right now in the church age. Psalm 110.1, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. But verse 2, The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion, rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. And then Luke 19.27, the parable of the Lord Jesus talks about the nobleman that goes into the far country to be proclaimed or, or receive kingship or a kingdom. And when he returns, notice this, when he returns, he says, those mine enemies, which would not that I should reign over them, bring them hither also and slay them before me, Luke 19, 27. And I says, wow, Christ is presently reigning. That was a foreign thought to my vocabulary in the past. Jesus was going to reign only futuristically. There was no realized reign. He wasn't king to the believer. I couldn't say King Jesus. But now, after what I came to see, I could say praise the King Jesus, who's on the throne. He's reigning and ruling. And I understand that it's a mediatorial reign. It's not a physical one, and that's still yet to come. And I realize there's a little overlap here with what Fred has been talking about, the already and not yet, you, you know, I, I don't think these brothers are consistent, and I'm glad they're not with, with historic dispensationalism because there's serious problems I find with that. But he shall sit and rule upon his throne. Now, Zechariah 6, our brother was referring to Zechariah. I want to make reference to 6.12. Behold the man whose name is the branch. He shall build, whose name is the branch. He shall build the temple of the Lord. Even he shall build the temple of the Lord. And he shall sit and rule upon his throne. He shall be of the glory. And he shall be a priest. And he'll rule upon his throne. When is he going to build? Will he return with hammer and nails in the millennium and build an Ezekielian temple? What are we going to do now with our hermeneutics here? Are we going to literalize the Old Testament but then we've got to spiritualize the New Testament. Or do we literalize the New Testament, which gives us reason now to spiritualize the Old Testament? I say we should draw our hermeneutics from the commentary on the Old Testament, and that is the New Testament. I think it's extremely important to study the usage of Old Testament passages by New Testament authors. And if their hermeneutic is that there's a spiritualization of Old Testament prophecies, then I feel that I'm obligated to do the same thing, especially on passages that they touch. I do feel somewhat reluctant to take up Old Testament passages that they do not in the New Testament and try to give some sense to them in a spiritualizing way. I, I recognize that there are difficulties there, and I hesitate to do that. Another thing that impressed me was this subject of the Melchizedek priesthood and how the Melchizedek priesthood relates to a millennium. You literalists out there that want to 
be so uh, emphatic about literalization and, and that is the only proper approach to Scripture, you run into trouble when you read the book of Hebrews. And if you take Ezekiel's temple literally, you're going to have to therefore have in the future Sabbath keeping, circumcision, shedding of blood for remission of sins. Read the text carefully, Ezekiel 40 to 47. You have death in that period of time. I'm glad Fred said it's the silver age and not the golden because it certainly doesn't appear golden when you read these passages in Ezekiel that are supposed to be typifying or actually speaking forth about a future literal millennium with these things taking place. But the point, and there's all other kinds of difficulties, is you have death of animals tearing one another. And they're told to not sacrifice animals that are torn. If you want, I'll give you those passages. So there's not going to be this lamb-lion sort of scenario that has been portrayed by the premillennialists. There's going to be this tranquility in nature. It's not going to be as they say it will be according to literalizations of some of these passages. Now how does the Melchizedek priesthood come into play? Well, according to Ezekiel in chapters 43 or thereabouts, you have reference to the Levites in the Zad of the Zadokite order that have to wear their garments a certain way. It's got to be linen, the bonnets, and so on. Very, very Jewish, very Old Testament, Old Covenantish. They've got to perform their duties. But wait a minute. We have a priest now after the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews 7 indicates that that priesthood now, because of the system being weak and unprofitable, has been eclipsed forever and ever and ever entirely because we have a priest now that ever liveth to make intercession for us. He is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I would ask my premillennial, literal millennial brethren to explain to me how the Melchizedek priesthood can be operative in, a, in an era when the Aaronic priesthood is supposed to be operative. These two priesthoods cannot be functioning simultaneously. I can't emphasize that enough, and I can't go into the details of that enough. The other thing is about the Jerusalems. I say Jerusalems plural because I'm a little confused. If there's going to be a restoration of Jerusalem upon the earth, and as Fred was quoting in Zechariah, that they go up from year to year to Jerusalem, well, what, what have, whatever happened to the Jerusalem which was above? which is the mother of us all. The, what happens to the Jerusalem that right now is in bondage with her children? Is somehow the Jerusalem from above going to come upon the earth and, and replace the Jerusalem that is below that's in bondage with her children? It seems to me that there's something like a double vision here because you've got a heavenly Jerusalem and this is even, uh, this is maybe only dispensational millennialism. I'm not sure because I'm not that that acquainted with a historic premillennial view, but I don't understand how they can interpret um, the uh, going up to Jerusalem in Revelations chapter 21. Where is that Jerusalem? Is that above or that is, is that beneath or where is it? I think that's a question that poses a difficulty to them. And then the other one, of course, is in regards to the resurrection. Chapter 6. This is the will of him that sent me, that he which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. John 6, 40. These are words that Mary says to Jesus, I know about Lazarus, that he shall rise in what? The last day. Something that they knew of in the Old Testament. Now what is going to happen after the resurrection? 
I think that brings us to Matthew chapter 25. When the Lord Jesus sits upon his throne and he calls the nations together and we have sheep and we have goats. The goats are consigned to where? Depart from me, verse 41, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. To the righteous, he says, come ye blessed of my father into what? The kingdom. Okay, the kingdom has now come in fullness and in glory. But the point is, how long will this kingdom last? Is it temporal? Does it have a termination that's going to be uh, terminated at the end of a thousand year period? This duration of time is equivalent to the duration of sufferings that the wicked are undergoing. And I think if you look at Matthew chapter 19, I don't have time to do this, in chapter 28, Jesus compares the regeneration of the Son of Man with the everlasting life of entering into the kingdom of heaven. So I see that when the Lord Jesus Christ comes, this is going to be climactic. This is going to be the ultimate. He's going to come. There'll be a resurrection of the just and the unjust. They'll hear the voice of the Son of God. They'll live the righteous to everlasting life, the wicked to everlasting damnation, and then Christ, as it says in Revelations 11 and 18, and then he shall reign forever and ever and ever. It's an everlasting reign. It's not a temporary reign. It's going to be an everlasting reign because his economical purposes are accomplished and now the eternal state, which is the ultimate end of God's purposes when the dogs and the whoremongers and all that offends are cast out and there is no interference or no blemish to this perfected eternal state. Check your prejudices at the door. <laughs> now we have a post mail from South Carolina. I just met this brother this week. By the way, how'd you hear about this conference? Brother Gatto told me about it. I'm from Hallmark Baptist Church in Simpsonville, South Carolina. When I found out that I, we would have 10 minutes to present post-millennial view, I wondered what in the earth was I going to talk about the last five minutes, but uh, <laughs> 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 we'll, <laughs> but we'll try to hold out. <laughs> Another thing that, um, that I'm impressed with is... Um, we probably are in a minority here, and I'm very happy to realize that you fellows are friendly people, and that you uh, can talk about things that you that you disagree about, and uh, don't get upset with each other. And I appreciate it. I really sincerely appreciate that very much. Now, first of all, I want to define what I mean by postmillennialism. It's sort of a fourfold definition. A post-millennial view as I hold it, and I do not speak for all post-millennialists, and I do not speak especially for the preteristic post-millennialists. But by post-millennialism, I mean this, <coughs> that there will be, one, a unique time on earth. I will call it a golden age because I believe it's a little bit better than silver. <laughs> and <laughs> a unique time on earth that has definitive boundaries and that is uh, that you're able to tell that something great is happening number two 
that it will be on this present earth, not in the new heaven and new earth, not later. It will be on this present earth. And number three, it will be before Jesus Christ returns to this earth to catch up his saints, to take, uh, uh, to uh, rescue us finally and ultimately from this uh, uh, existence for the new heaven and new earth and before the judgments. And number four, that it will be a, uh, within the church age, seeing as the church age is the last days, and that the church will be the agent of Almighty God with all of his power. It will be the agent through which he brings about this golden age through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and all of the surrounding doctrines of the scripture. I was a pre-mill for 15 years, and I, it, it continued to trouble me because all the points that I could make, and I'm not saying that this applies necessarily to everybody, and I certainly have appreciated the, um, the insights that I've gotten this morning, especially from Brother Fred's uh, uh, comment, but it seemed to me that about all I could do in terms of true exegesis of Scripture would be to make it seem as if there was the possibility of premillennialism uh, that could be inserted into every scripture. Now, that's a whole big difference than taking a passage and saying that, the, uh, that, the, that premillennialism is taught here in this passage. After it was all said and done, after 15 years, I could not, in my own heart, turn to the, any place in the Bible and say premillennialism is necessarily taught because this scripture says what it says. I couldn't find it. And so I, I looked for, and I said, I'm going to wipe it all out, and as best I can, and I know that we can't always start from scratch with no presuppositions or unbiased, but as best I could, before God, I tried to come to the place where I'm going to say, I don't, I'm not going to take any position. I'm going through the scripture, collect the data, analyze the data, and, until, and then when I see the data pointing in a direction, I'm going to follow that direction until such time as I can find something that would establish a rigorous indication that one or the other of the millennial positions, or someone that had never been thought of before, I didn't rule that out either, became apparent in the scriptures. I was looking for something that had some rigor to it. I believe God's Word does have rigor in certain areas. Now, there's some things it doesn't. Some things God has not intended to put down with absolute ironclad rigor, but there are some things that the Bible teaches that have some rigor that it's unyielding, and there are certain answers that, uh, uh, that it gives and we can depend upon. Now, that's what I started out looking for. <clears throat> Is something that had some rigor so there wouldn't be all this uh, fuzziness about it. Well, this seems to indicate this, but this seems to indicate that on the other hand, and I wonder which is right. That's not satisfactory to the human soul. God created us. We belong to him. He created the rational uh, capabilities of the human mind, and he created language that we might be able, he might communicate with us, and he put that language in the Bible. Now, based on that hermeneutic, I believe, that God can let us know exactly which position, if any of the three, are correct. That's what I set out to try to find out with that basis. Now, your 
your uh, discussion yesterday, Brother John, and I thought that was an excellent exegesis of chapter 2 of the book of Acts. And I fully, basically fully agree with it. I don't necessarily reach the same conclusion that he did on that, but I think he made his case. Now, Brother Fred got up this morning, and he exegeted, and I emphasize exegeted. He exegeted the 11th chapter of Romans, and uh, uh, in his exegesis, he made this point, and I believe he actually made the case for this point, that when it says in verse 26, uh, all Israel shall be saved, that that Israel means ethnic Israel, the nation. I believe he made that case. Now, those are two different, differing positions, and it seems to me like since they were both arrived at by exegesis of the Word of God, my task becomes to shift my position until I find something that is compatible with both views. If the Scripture teaches that Jesus Christ at the right hand of God from, from Acts chapter 2 is in fulfillment of the Davidic kingdom principle, I've got to accept that, and I've got to adjust my views until such time as my views are compatible with that exegetical truth. In chapter 11, if, that's, if the exegetical truth of that says that, that Israel, all Israel will be saved, and that Israel is ethnic Israel, I've also got to adjust my position until it's compatible with that exegetical truth. Rather than to try to unexegete, as it were, one or the other of those passages. We don't want to unexegete anything. So, if, uh, if therefore we have, uh, did I tear something up? If we have those uh, truths in the scripture, the position that I'm going to take is compatible with both of them. All Israel will be saved, the nation will be saved, and they will be saved during the period of time that Jesus is at the right hand of God. Because let, let's turn back to uh, chapter 2 of the book of Romans real quickly. I can't uh, do much exegesis, but I want to point out something there. Book of Rome, uh, not Romans, book of Acts, chapter 2 of Acts, and I want to point out something, because Peter, when he began his discussion there, as it was pointed out yesterday, he said, this is that, and then he, and he cites Joel's prophecy, and looking at Joel's prophecy, uh, in, in verse uh, 18 and following through verse uh, 20, there he puts limits or he puts boundaries upon a period of time that he calls the last days. Notice it says, verse 17 says, it shall come to pass in the last days. Now the last days has boundaries. The boundaries are there, the present, if you will. That's the, uh, the now and the not yet is uh, any period of time has a now and not yet. One hour has a now and not yet. 1995, this is April, it's now. It's not yet December, but it will be. Everything has a now and not yet if it's time. So he puts boundaries here, and he says, uh, this that you now see is fulfilling the prophecy, but 
in verse 20 he says, uh, let me read verse 19. <laughs> it says, and I will, sh I will show wonders in the heavens above and, and, and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come. Now, we have the other, the not yet termination on this period of time that is called the last days. It runs from Pentecost until the great and notable day of the Lord. Now, there was a brother got up here yesterday, and he said <coughs> he wasn't very smart. And he turned to Second Peter, and I'm not going to turn there, and, and pointed out that that was an utter and complete termination of the heavens and the earth. Burnt up. Gone. Now, the, as I was looking then for something rigorous, Studying the scripture, when I studied the concept and all of the scriptures in those passages that have to do with the second coming of Christ, I found out this, that when Jesus returns to this earth, that means the absolute destruction of the heavens and the earth. I, and therefore, there was no place to have a millennium. And it also means that, as one has already pointed out uh, today, it also means that the lost are going to be destroy, destroyed by fire and the saved are going to be caught up with Jesus out of this earth. That's what it means. And if that's so, there's not going to be any people down here to have a millennium on this earth if there was an earth to have one on. And there's not going to be either one of them. Now then, extrapolating from that proposition, you know, this is not, again, just a notion. Look in Hebrews chapter 12 real quickly. I'm depending on you to tell me when my time is up or to have mercy one. <laughs> I'd, pre I'd prefer the latter. <laughs> chapter 12, chapter 12 of the book of Hebrews. It's talking about uh, a, a period of time there that uh, is compared to the Mount Sinai experience. But look in verse 26, speaking about Jesus, whose voice shook the earth. He says, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he has promised, saying, yet once more, I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And now he explains what he means by that. And this word, yet once more, signifies the removing of those things that are shaken as of things that are made. Now, what was made? The heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth and all that in them is. So the things that are made are going to be removed when the earth is shaken one more time. Now, quickly turn to uh, uh, Matthew chapter 24. Uh, this, I'm just giving you an illustration of something that I say is, that I believe is rigorous. This seems to be emphatic language, and I basically do try to follow the uh, literal trans, uh, interpretation of things. But uh, as the brother pointed out, there are some things that are not literal. 
And so you take it piece by piece and see what's literal and what's not. All right, now, verse 29, chapter 24, Matthew. Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened and the moon shall not give her light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heaven shall be shaken. Now there's a shaking, a unique shaking, a shaking that shakes the whole heavens and the stars are going to fall, it says here. And I take that quite literally. I don't find any philosophical, theological, scientific or any other way or any problem with taking that uh, basically at face value. And then it says, shall the, you shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with great power and great glory. And he will catch up the elect from the four winds of the earth. And then if that's not the destruction of the earth, and he's taking up all of the elect uh, at the time that he comes so that they won't be in the destruction. He leaves some who will go through this holocaust and perish in it. And there's not going to be a soul alive on this earth. And there's going to be only the saints of, or the elect with him in heaven wherever he is. And so there is a rigorous proposition to me which says there can't be a millennium after Jesus comes. There just can't be. There's no earth. There's no people. Not only that, the day of grace is over. It's gone. It's not going to be any people waiting and seeing, oh, I see him coming in the clouds. I believe I'll repent. Uh -uh. That's not theologically sound. There will be no salvation after he returns. There will be no earth after he returns. There will be no heavens after he returns. So there are at least five major passages in the New Testament that teach that proposition. That's proposition one. Proposition two is Jesus is at the right hand of God and he will there be sitting until he makes his enemies his footstool and the last enemy to be conquered as we've already seen or it's been sort of mentioned from uh, 15, 15 Whoa. It's been sort of mentioned from that passage. You go ahead and talk. That, uh, you know, the end will come to the end. But the proposition that I want to make is that it says there in the same passage that he, Jesus, must reign until all his enemies are made his footstool. Speaking of that. Now, that footstool idea is from Psalms 1 that footstool idea is the, uh, is the program of God during this, these last days delineated from the time uh, of, the, of Pentecost on through until the, until the great and notable day of the Lord. It's distinguished by those uh, adjectives to distinguish from other usages of day of the Lord in the Old Testament. But the great and notable day of the Lord, that's how long Jesus is going to reign. And every single enemy, including death, which is the last enemy to be conquered, will, will be conquered at his coming on that occasion when the dead are resurrected. And that is the end of death and all other enemies of God. And there won't be a millennium 
after that. Now, I wish I had some time to deal with the with the mill guys, but <laughs> I don't. We gave you five minutes of grace. Oh, great. That's because I... <laughs> that's because I no, dropped the... We, the, the post mill's got short shift in the conference, so we gave him five minutes extra. A couple of clarifications. You mentioned the previous post mill, but before you do that, that historically there was post-millennialism that spoke of the last days and the revival through the church and the ministry of the gospel, which was the Puritan hope that uh, uh, Ian Murray talked about. Is that what you mean by post-millennialism? That's fundamentally, or it's very close. Now, there's some shades of difference, but okay. that which they call the latter-day glory is basically a description of my conclusions. Okay. Now, what about uh, the post-millennialism of uh, theonomy, the eschatology of victory, uh, what is that in conjunction with your view of postmodernism? Okay, my view of that is that Jesus is is at the right hand of God to make his enemies his footstool from therefore expecting until they be made and that some of them are going to be made his footstool through regeneration and through the gospel and others are going to, to be made his footstool at his final coming through judgment and destruction. And the church is the agent of God to gain these victories, and, and I wish I had the time to support all this from Scripture, but to gain these victories, uh, and that is a mighty powerful idea, that God is going to get the victory over this earth. Now, would you classify you? Would you classify yourself as a theonomist? No. Okay. I wouldn't. I'm not anything to do with the uh, with the Reconstructionist movement. Okay. Now, the, you mentioned preachers. Would you explain? what you mean by previous post-millennialism? Uh, most of them, uh, uh, certainly and probably not all of them, but they tend to interpret those major passages, like in Matthew 24, as, being, as having been already fulfilled by the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Now, to me, that just utterly wipes out major sections of New Testament prophecy, and I can't, uh, I can't go that way. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm.